Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to the call of Levi, or Matthew, as he's also known from his own Gospel account. And in turn, a meal in Matthew's home that immediately followed his call that included both the worst of Israel, think tax collectors, but also the supposed best of Israel too, that is the Pharisees and the scribes. And within that meal, two questions, or really two attacks, are thrown at Jesus by his opponents. The first question concerns why Jesus, the supposed Holy One of Israel, would have table fellowship with people like Matthew. And the second, which we'll look at next week, concerns why Jesus' disciples, unlike John the Baptist's disciples or the Pharisees themselves, chose to feast instead of fast. So really the scene goes from verse 27 through 39 with those, those two questions, but for the sake of time, I'm, I'm gonna break it up this week and cover that first scene uh, with that first question. So let's pick it up, uh, chapter five, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to our God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this brief moment that is so loaded with meaning and implications for us living 2,000 years later. We thank you for the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray now for the Spirit to be among us, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we begin with our passage in full today, I have a holdover from last week's passage that needs to be discussed because I ran out of time. Uh, a crucial component uh, of being part of the people of God, like we saw last week, is interceding for each other. If you remember from last week's passage, the friends of the paralytic man worked very hard to bring him into the presence of of Jesus. And Luke purposely in that passage repeats that his friends wanted to bring him before Jesus. That phrase before Jesus is important because they recognized that life is found in Jesus. And frankly, we are commanded to do this too in terms of what is called intercessory prayer, where we intercede for each other, bringing the concerns and needs of others before God. Now, while we can and should be about each other's physical needs, and we should, in fact, James teaches that if we don't care about such things, then we should call into question whether we are actually Christians or not. As in, if we know one of our brothers or sisters is, say, going hungry, we know we could do something about that, but we say, hey, I'll pray for you and then go to our homes having not addressed their hunger, James says we should probably call into question whether we have uh, rightly understood Jesus or not. Even so, 
even as the world thinks prayer is useless, and you hear that a lot these days, Christ has taught us otherwise. Here's what intercessory prayer uh, is not, though. When I pray for someone, I'm not merely thinking about them, and I'm, I'm certainly not sending prayers their way. And I don't even know what that means. And yet, I, if you're like me, you hear that from time to time. It just sounds kind of nonsensical to me. Likewise, prayer does not work in the sense that merely by praying, God is forced to act as if prayer is like a formula or a recipe or a, a, a lever uh, to be pulled that if uttered often enough will bring about the desired results. So prayer is not like a, a one-armed bandit in a casino that if we have enough faith or to keep the imagery going, enough quarters, if we just keep pulling that lever, we just have faith. Eventually, good things will happen. Well, no. That's not promised. Even the godliest among us cannot force God to act. And certainly, uh, I don't think the Bible teaches that prayer is an end in and of itself, as in, I believe in the power of prayer. I don't believe in the power of prayer. You can put that on a t-shirt. I do not believe in the power of prayer. No, I believe in a powerful God who invites us to seek him through prayer. It's a very different thing. Prayer merely as an activity, as if it is another word for meditation or just repeating thoughts over and over again, is empty and useless if it is not directed to God himself. It's why Jesus teaches us to begin our prayers with our Father. They're real conversations, real petitions directed to a real person. So what it means to pray for someone, that is to intercede for them, is simply to seek God on behalf of the other person and ask for God to intervene and act in that person's life in whatever way God sees fit. It's good and right, of course, to be specific in our requests, like just think of the passage from last week. The men bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus, they were incredibly specific. If we want God to save someone's life or to turn their person's heart to him, you should pray for that. You should pray for that with boldness. And God invites us to do it. In fact, he loves that those men did that, and he commends their faith. Now, does that mean God will do what we want him to do? No. You know, so often God acts far better than we can imagine, even if it might seem like God said no, in which case his no is a good thing. Our desires and feelings can be well-intended, but you know what? Sometimes they're often misplaced, even as they can be twisted and self-centered. You can have completely self-centered prayers and not realize that's what you're doing. Now, as an aside... The modern way of interpreting these moments when, when God says no or he delays or whatever it is he chooses to do, the modern way of interpreting these moments is through our feelings. It's through our feelings. It's why people no longer say, I think. They say, I feel. And those two things are very different. They're very different. While feelings are important and they, they can absolutely serve 
as a check engine light for us. So why do I feel sad all the time? Why, why am I crying? I don't know if I have a reason. Why do I feel so anxious? Those are good things. That's a good way emotions function for us. But they can also at the same time be misleading and give false impressions. So, like an anorexic girl that feels like she is fat, when reality is very different, so too it can feel as if God is against us or doesn't care or is distant from us when he has told us otherwise in his word. And what pleases God, and you see this with Jesus' reaction to the paralytic man's friends, is when his people seek him for his glory, but also for the sake of others. And this, of course, is exactly what Jesus did and continues to do for us, and we have the privilege of following in his footsteps. So I just had to get that out from last week because I didn't get a chance to talk about it. That takes us to our text today. So after the healing of the paralytic, when these men had interceded for their friend, it was still the Sabbath, and Jesus soon after encountered Matthew sitting in his tax booth on the side of the road. Now, don't picture the scene like a little pop-up vegetable or, or watermelon stand on the side of the road, right? Picture it as a toll booth or like a border patrol station. So in other words, everyone traveling on the road was forced to stop and deal with the tax man. In this case, it's Matthew. And notice that Jesus called out to Matthew, follow me. As in, Jesus went right to him and said, you follow me. Now, previous to this, Jesus rebuked a demon. He rebuked a fever, cleansed a leper by both speaking to him and touching him. And by his word, he both forgave the sins of the paralytic and raised him from his bed, which is really a clear anticipation of both his atoning death and the resurrection of the dead. And I think it's, it's easy then to read passages like this one, especially as we, we break down the story uh, into digestible pieces from week to week. I mean, after all, I'm splitting one story into two parts. So it's easy to read passages like this one in isolation, as if Jesus went from a local synagogue and just happened to pass by a tax booth, and in turn, Matthew was completely unaware of Jesus and what had just happened, and so Matthew was responding in complete ignorance. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. Now, I have to admit this is speculation, but I'm guessing that the tax booth was set up in a place where it was sure to hit the majority of the local Jewish population, like near a synagogue. It's like putting a gas station or a Burger King right off an interstate exit. You know, after all, the purpose of a tax collector was to get as much money as possible out of whatever local population for the Romans. I mean, just squeezing and squeezing. And so you want to hit as many people as you possibly can. So you're not going to be out of the way. You're going to be right in the thick of things. And again, this is speculation, but I'm guessing Matthew had some idea of what had just happened in the synagogue even if he wasn't personally in the synagogue itself. It was a small town, and it's not every Sabbath that a synagogue was jam-packed with people from all over the country, and in turn, a group of men tear out part of the roof and lowered a handicapped man through it. 
but it's kind of eye-catching. My point is, like Peter, James, and John previous to this, I don't think this was the first time Matthew had heard or seen Jesus. If the reports about Jesus had made it all the way down to Jerusalem, he probably knew the reports as well. Now, that Jesus would reach out to Matthew, a tax collector literally sitting in the seat of tyranny. That's what that was. You think the IRS is bad? You think Obamacare is bad? This is the seat of tyranny. And, and he calls him to be his disciple. That he does this, it's astonishing. So the call to follow Jesus is a call to repent and to turn away from whatever life we have been trying to live apart from God. So in that sense, for Jesus to call Matthew to repent and turn back to God is not that out of the ordinary. It's something that a Pharisee might have said to Matthew as they're being taxed too. But Jesus didn't call on Matthew uh, to make a blanket you know, repentance to God. He called Matthew to repent and to follow him follow him. So like with the paralytic in the scene before, Jesus has put himself in the place of God. He atones for sin and offers forgiveness. He raises people from their sickbed and he calls people to repent and follow him. That's a big deal and we'll take that up more next week. Now, as an aside, it's worth asking, are the disciples, like we see here, are they the model or the example for how people come to faith and, and follow Jesus? As in, is what we see here typical of how it works? Well, yes and no. Matthew 16 makes it clear that Jesus' disciples are called to come and die. That is, we are to die to ourselves and live for him, and that is a, something that never stops. It never stops. So for every disciple of Christ, there is a clear break with the world. We're different. We're supposed to be different. We are set apart. That's what it means to be a holy priesthood. We belong to a different God than the world. So in that sense, all Christians are called to live differently in the world. Just as Matthew, in that moment, made an instant break with his previous life. Even so, while some people have a similar experience as the disciples, and as in a, a radical change in that moment, most people do not. For most people, if they come to faith as adults, for example, the move can actually be pretty gradual. Jesus gently walks with them and brings them along, and it may take years sometimes for some people, if not a lifetime of conversion for some people. I've heard of people praying for people and they come to faith in their 70s or their 80s. There may be starts and stops before a, a full confession is realized and it is common that a person may not be able to point to a specific moment when they fully came to Christ. And that's fine. But there are many examples like say Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all the generations after the Exodus, they were actually born into the family of God. So in other words, they do not have a conversion experience like what we see with Matthew. And that's a good thing too. 
So every child born into this church hopefully will find verse 1 of Amazing Grace to be kind of a strange hymn. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Those are the words of a slave trader who came to faith as an adult. And they are beautiful. That's why we sing them. But they are not the words of someone who can't remember a time when they didn't know Jesus. Because like Isaac, they always had eyes. As far as they can remember. They were born into the family of God. Now that's not to say those born into Christian homes don't recognize their sin. Of course they do. It's rather that they've always enjoyed the benefits of the new covenant. They don't have a rags to riches story. No, they were born in a palace. They were born in a palace. They don't know a time when they weren't rich. And that's good. No, they were born into the household of God. And it's why we rightly raise and treat our children as Christians until they demonstrate otherwise. And even then, we treat them like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the thing is, both the adult convert to the faith, like we see with the church in Galatia, for example, all adult converts, and the person born into a Christian home, they're both miraculous acts of God. So both the parents in the Galatian church and their children born into that church, though they have different experiences, are equally works of God. So perhaps like me, you've encountered the, uh, I need to have a spectacular testimony as proof that I'm really a Christian. I've absolutely felt that and have acted on that. Or I need to be able to point to the day or even the hour when I decided for Christ and gave my life to him. And what happens with such thinking is that it totally undercuts both the promise made to Abraham that the blessing is for you and your children, but also moments like this one in Luke. And even if you did have a spectacular conversion story like Matthew's here, which is, I think, crazy, or Paul's on the road to, to Damascus, which is even crazier. And I've heard many, many crazy testimonies that are awesome. Those moments are not about your decision. They're about God's. Jesus, you see, decided for Matthew. Matthew didn't come looking for Jesus. Jesus went looking for Matthew, just like he did for the paralytic just like he did for all the disciples. I mean, after all, Paul wasn't on the road looking for Jesus. No, but Jesus went looking for him and found him. And one of the greatest blessings someone can ever receive is to be born into a godly household and be taught the doctrines of God from youth, both in word and deed, and to enjoy the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, the prayer, and the fellowship of the saints. And, and I don't care what you think you own. None of it compares to the treasure that we enjoy in this place. None of it. I, I mean, I count it as one of the greatest blessings, one of the greatest gifts God ever gave to me is that Meg and I were called here. Called here to serve and to be able to raise our children in this place among all of you. It is a real treasure and gift.
Now, one of the major criticisms thrown at Jesus by his opponents throughout his ministry is that Jesus was a glutton and a drunk. And we'll discuss that accusation a little bit more next week. But the accusation comes about because Jesus spent a lot of time not merely eating and drinking, but feasting with people, in particular with sinners. That's what he's doing here. So when we say feasting, we don't just mean big meals, right? They didn't have supersized stuff back then. But that the meals themselves had a, a, a party-like aspect to them. They were fun and they were, they were joyful, like a good Christmas party. So like the wedding at Cana in John 2, it was good food and it was good wine, not grape juice. The accusation was not that Jesus had a sweet tooth, but that he was a drunk because the Jews knew what fermentation was. So it was good food and good wine shared around a table of disreputable and disgraceful people. And when we say sinners, we don't mean backsliders or people who were, I don't know, Christian-ish or casual faith Christians. No, we mean people who were way off the mark of what was considered good or acceptable, and everybody knew it, including those people. People like Matthew, the tax collector who was not welcome at synagogue. That said, even a cursory reading of the gospel shows that meals and food are an important, it's, you could write a whole paper on this, an important theme of Jesus's ministry, whether it's meals like this one or the feeding of the 5,000 or the institution of the Lord's Supper. And it's worth just briefly considering how the Bible talks about that and why that is. So if you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, at the heart of worship is communion. That is table fellowship with God. Food, of course, is central to the story of Garden of Eden, you know, where Adam could eat of any tree in the garden, including the tree of life, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was held back from him. And presumably, when he was ready, when he had endured testing and trusted in God's word, and this is exactly at the heart of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, God would no longer hold back the tree from him or the fruit of the tree from him. God did not create that tree as something unobtainable. He intended Adam to eat from it with him, with him. That tree, in many respects, was sacramental. It was set apart by God. It was intended to be eaten in God's presence at his command. And from that point on, after the fall, worship, even in a fallen world, even in a sinful world, still involves eating with God. Cain and Abel brought edible sacrifices to God in worship. So they didn't bring money. They brought fruits, vegetables, and the sacrifice of animals. Abraham ate with God at the Oaks of Mamre, and God confirmed his covenant with him there. God instituted the Passover as one of the central rituals for Israel that both atoned for their sins and gave them table fellowship with God. Think about it. They ate the sacrifice. The two other great pilgrimage uh, festivals also involved feasting, and all of them confirmed God's salvation and presence among them. Like with Abraham, God had a meal with Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel on Sinai on the mountain after the covenant was confirmed with that generation, and that was Exodus 24. God fed his people by his own hand with manna and quail for 40 years in the wilderness. He then gave his people a land flowing with milk and honey. 
That is a land that would produce a veritable feast year in and year out. And included in that life with God was the weekly Sabbath, including rest, including a weekly Seder-type meal like we see in our, our passage here in Luke at Matthew's house. And then a whole Sabbath year, otherwise known as the year of Jubilee. Within the Levitical sacrificial system, many of the offerings were meant to be eaten by the whole family, even as some sacrifices were to be eaten by the priest alone. David sings that God prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies. That's table fellowship. That's eating with God, and his cup overflows. Prophets like Isaiah look forward to a time when the nations would find rest and table fellowship with God. And as we see throughout Jesus' ministry, it's not merely that he feasts. In celebration of the Jubilee, no less, because he says it's happening. Like God in the wilderness, he feeds people by his own hand and institutes a new meal that redefines the Passover in terms of his death and resurrection in our life in him. And of course, the New Testament ends with a wedding feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, when all God's people are gathered together with Jesus at his table. So what's the point? By the way, I could have thrown a whole lot more. What's the point? It's not merely that we need food to live. It's that we are creatures dependent on God for life, and he has made us to have life in him. You need actual bread to live, so to speak. But man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. We need both. So in other words, table fellowship is central to our life with God. That's why the Lord's Supper is central to our worship with God as well. Jesus chose to feast with people because he was inaugurating the year of Jubilee and in turn, new creation. And he was restoring full communion, full table fellowship with God. So when you eat with Jesus, you eat with God. You sit down to a table that Adam rejected. You receive from the king's own hand, not merely bread, but the bread of life. And that life is abundant and it's eternal. But why does he feast with sinners? Now, on the one hand, because we're knowledgeable about the Bible, we know that sinners are the only kind of people there are. So who else would Jesus eat with? But on the other hand, I'm actually sympathetic uh, to the uh, eyebrow raising of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, I've, I've struggled for years, and I have not overcome it today, but I've struggled to come up with a modern equivalent to a tax collector that might give us uh, the same revulsion or disgust that a first century Jew might have felt. I haven't come up with an example, maybe someday I will, but it's enough to say that they were traitors to their people and they worked for the Romans, gouging everyone they could, charging tax rates, sometimes well over 50%, and in turn got rich in the process. I mean, how could you not hate those people? That Jesus sought out both people we can, we can empathize with, right? The disabled, the sick, the dying, even the outcast, maybe. But also these, those people we, we would easily condemn. Tax collectors, foreigners, sexually immoral. Tells us just how deep God's kindness and grace really goes. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I think it's a question we would have asked too, and maybe still do. 
In response, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what's fascinating about this moment is that Jesus, I think, is actually inviting his opponents to have a moment of self-evaluation. And Paul does exactly the same thing in Romans 1 through 3, where he shifts from the wickedness of the Gentiles, which was easy for any Jew to point out. In the book of Romans, the, that Roman church was a mixture between Jew and Gentile, right? So as you're reading through the first couple of chapters, it's easy for, you could just see the Jewish people just saying, yep, Gentile. But he switches to the hypocritical, self-righteous facade of the Jews, and he essentially says, guess what? Nobody is off the hook. And in Paul's view, because the Jews had the law and should have known better, it actually made them worse. It made them worse. The Pharisee and the scribes had just seen Jesus completely and instantly heal a paralytic man, and the miracle was performed for their benefit so that they might know that Jesus can forgive sins. So here, Jesus does not merely explain himself to his critics. He's given them an opportunity for self-reflection to see that the difference between a much-hated Jewish traitor and themselves was probably a whole lot closer than they actually realized. And in turn, to repent, not in any general sense as if I'm going to make a better show of myself, but to repent and find life in Jesus. And as we'll see next week, they brush right past his answer and ask him another question. Well, in closing, when you think about this moment, on the one hand, it can feel pretty distant from us because we don't exactly have this kind of situation. But in another sense, it feels really close to home because we live in an incredibly self-righteous age. You know, whether it's the people clamoring to be on the so-called right side of history or the people clamoring to show them just how ridiculous they are and everyone in between, which is probably where most of us live. And so our times, like we see with the Pharisees, they're actually skeptical of Jesus' statement, even among Christians. You know, Jesus is not inviting us to see ourselves as worthless. No, the paralytic and the tax collector, like those two, those two men, he invites us to consider that we aren't merely sick and dying, though that's clearly true, but rather that we are in need of atonement and resurrection, which is an entirely different class of thing. Of course, it's easy to recognize that those who do not know Jesus, they need this. But even for those who do know him, both those who came to faith as adults, maybe even with an incredible testimony to show for it, and those fortunate enough to be born into the household of God, we never outgrow the gospel. We never outgrow the gospel. We never outgrow his mercy and atonement. No, maturity is not outgrowing the gospel to where it becomes stale, and we want to know the deeper stuff, the philosophical stuff, maybe that Greek exegetical stuff. No, it's growing more reliant upon the gospel, and that, that growth is most often demonstrated not in how well we can quote the Bible, or in superficial behavior at gas stations, but in our humility before God and each other. The call to follow me is a call that never ends. It never ends. And like Matthew recognized, all of us are in need of that physician, and we never outgrow his care.
Well, let me pray for us as we end our time. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have not let us go, that you continue to pursue us, that you continue to call us back to repent and to find life in you. Thank you for the grace that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ who atoned for us and has promised resurrection for us. And we pray now as we end this time together with you that your spirit would indwell us as we go forth, that you would bless us and keep us, that we may walk in your ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.